Hello. And welcome to Sunday Cinema Club with Paddy and Neil. I'm Paddy. I'm Neil. And tonight we're going to be watching The Maltese Falcon, the 1941 film noir. So Paddy, let's talk a little bit about film noir. It's that beautiful style that's influenced so heavily by German expressionism and a little bit of French uh, poetic realism that came together in the like 40s and carried on through the 50s. It's marked by that darkness. What what are your favourite ones? What are your absolute favourite noirs? I think think for me, obviously Maltese Falcon and other bogeys such as... Other bogeys. (laughs) uh, To have and have not. The Big Sleep. But things also like... um, the Robert Mitchum film, which is Out of the Past. Uh, there's a number of different films there. A lot of forgotten films, I think, as well. There are, but they're all marked by some some clear links in the way that they like portray women, for example. The use of the hard-boiled kind of person as the lead character, the cynical person who's fed up with the world, very much like Sam Spade in this film. And on that, not necessarily an old-fashioned white hat good guy, but a bit more shaded in terms of their mm. worldview. Yeah, I think that that possibly is something that's come out of the trying to get around the Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code was brought in in, I think, 1928 in by the Postmaster General in the States, which was a censorship index, basically. Here's what you can and can't do in films. And by 1934, had eliminated all forms of sexual innuendo and on-screen nudity, which of which there was some in even in the states, and toned down language such that you get a vastly different sort of cinema language coming out of mm-hmm. it to get around things. And how did it affect the portrayal of violence? Because things like Scarface, the early one, they're really violent. And you know, the end of the Public Enemy is extremely violent. I think. Actually, it led to the whole United States love of violence. I think violence is acceptable within these movies because the bad guy gets his comeuppance. That's actually one of the key things in the Hays Code, isn't it? That violence, uh, sorry, crime must never pay. Exactly. I mean, this was also the case then taken up in Britain as well. Not so much in Europe, I feel, or Japanese cinema, Indian cinema and so on. It was more a Western... um, what should we say, Presbyterian outlook on life? <laughs> yeah, sort of like miserable. Is that yeah. what you're saying? What I'm saying no... is like, there's no fun to be had. But of course, it means things like, uh, there was already a pre-existing self-censorship of things. So a kiss in a movie equals sex. And that had been the way from the you know, 1910. Stylistically, though, film noir, a lot of the style things come because they could. There were developments that actually weren't possible earlier. So the extreme chiaroscuro, the, the the way that they put the black and the, the black shadows and the hard lighting on the to really emphasise key characters or key moments, that wasn't possible with earlier film stock. And I think that the reason why we don't see any noirs through the any colour noirs until we get to colour noir, you know what I mean. They don't see a film noir in colour until the seventies, is because the films the, the films are just not good enough to do it. Right, you can't introduce the subtleties that would be in the lighting and so on to yeah, exactly. get it captured by the colour film. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we actually get to the 70s and we start thinking um, Chinatown yeah. um, and things like that, French Connection perhaps. Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, where it's, again, they're, they're very noir elements in that, but it's in colour and they look great, those. Um, actually, the thing as well about a, a an early film noir is they are so good to look at 
Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it is all about faces, isn't it? But also the mise-en-scene, everything else is so perfectly delineated. Everyone is exactly where they're meant to be in relation to each other. So spatially, it's, it's elegant symmetry a lot of yeah, the time. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing is that you often see in a film noir is the use of Dutch in the camera angles. That's, I mean, the cameras are very static in 40s films because they're massive and can't move. Yeah, so to capture the sound, they had to be. Yeah, yeah, and sound, yeah. exactly. So to make it off balance, they often literally just tilt the camera, yeah. put it in a weird place, low, high. Think about the third man. Of course. There's so much of that used to unbalance. To Actually, it's also in the mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene or mise-en-scene? Let's go with both. Okay. What, every time? Uh, no, just potato, potato type of thing. I okay, think. okay. So the mise-en-scene, Sen, is in these films, they often see the characters are off-centred. So yes. That's an indication of like the lack of balance within the story, lack of balance within the characters themselves. Right, so it's unsettling for the viewer, and then because it's a story element, this is someone who's not to be trusted. Yeah. And also, I think a director like Houston had his own language, because John Houston directs this one. He has his own language where if a person is on the right of the screen, might have for the this, viewer, for right of the screen to the viewer, that that means something different to if they're slightly over to the left. You're often looking at this film you will see that the Bogart character is away on the uh, that side. The left-hand side. The left-hand side of the screen. Right. Whereas the... We're going to check this, listeners. <laughs> listener. Listener. The listener. The listener will we'll check it. I can't remember which side it is. So, yeah, the, the, the language is that one side of the screen represents the more wholesome, our hero side, and the other side is the villain side okay the suspect the suspicious side of the screen anyway um talking of the directors and the actors what was bogart doing at the time well bogart had started to break out of his supporting roles that he was you know he always claimed he'd been in 40 pictures in five years and he'd been shot and killed in 12 of them hung in electrocuted in eight of them like executed as a murderer and this sort of thing in reality he did actually play second fiddle to the main Warner Brothers stars and Warner Brothers was the studio he was signed to. Who were those stars at the time? I mean, where have they gone? Well, so people like Edward G. Robinson tended to hit the 1940s and find their star power faded. People like Paul Mooney, um, George Raft, who of course had real gangster connections through Bugsy Siegel, his childhood friend. They were all slightly older than Bogart. Hit the 1940s with a lot of reputational issues mm-hmm. actually deciding they weren't getting given good characters good deals whatever it happened to be they were pushing back against the studio so the studio pushed them and basically their careers started to fade they were, so people like Edward G. Robinson who were excellent actors start to having to accept that they're now below the title right is that something to do with their acting style which is more mannered I mean when we watch 40s films there is a Sure. A style, but it has moved on, hasn't it? I think so, yeah. I think someone like George Raff would also admit he was not a very good actor. Would he admit? Probably. Would you have told him? Uh, maybe not, because he was... Yeah, he knew a few people. He was he, quite gangstery. Yes, he, he apparently called off a hit off... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good of him. That's a good thing. It's, a, and it's one in his plus column. Yeah. He yeah. called off the hit. 
<laughs> Should we not establish who put the hit on in the fit? Let's not I move th- on. I Let's think they're on. all dead. They're all dead. They're it's all fun. dead. Anyway, someone like George Raft, who was a, introduced in Hollywood as a song and dance man, hasn't really, you know, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of maybe I should get more money. You're already at the top of the ladder. We're not paying you any more money. Some executive producers are looking around going, these guys are at the top of the ladder. Who can I promote who would be successful in pictures? So therefore, I get a bigger slice of the pie. Sure. Yeah, because of course this is all, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but there's a there's a quota of films to be made each year. They are assigning people to those films. Yeah. Warner Brothers is not one of the top uh, studios. Uh, famously, Bogey used to wear, in, indeed, in the Maltese Falcon, he's wearing his own clothes here. This is his own suit because he thought Warner Brothers was so cheap in the wardrobe department that he'd rather wear his own clothes. I'm talking about the mise-en-scene. It's a dark style. They wear dark clothing. It's it's quite striking when you see a character come in dressed in a light character, light thing. Yes. It's often the femme fatale who does that. Yes, and this is before Casablanca, so obviously Bogey hasn't started to wear the trench coat mm. to indicate the lighter side of his character, perhaps, compared to the darkness sure. of it. So how does Bogart break out from this? Why is this his breakout film? So this is a breakout film partly because Houston wants to work with him. They've become friends during the making of High Sierra, which Houston wrote, and Bogart hired a very strong secondary role in. And this is the thing, he's now been given a few roles where he's expressed a lot more character, done a lot more work, and he's being recognised. People want to push him as a star. The opportunity arises because of people like Raft and Mooney and Cagney wanting to do different things. In fact, Mooney's career films basically disappears after this. You know, he's in a handful of pictures up until the end of the 50s, from that point onwards. So there's all sorts of weird things going on with Raft trying to go to another studio. So there's an opportunity now. So they give him his opportunity. He has his above-the-title shot, much as Mary Astor does in this as well. She's also a supporting actress you know, for Betty Davis or whoever for years and years and years. This is her shot of a complex character who they feel they can embody with more verve than has been achieved before, and they grab it by the horns. And it's a successful film. It is embraced by audiences. Even the supporting characters... Peter Laurie, Sydney Greenstreet, employed time and time again, often in partnership, because they're so successful in this. Sure. Let's talk about Mary Astor, because she's um, older than a lot of leading ladies at the time. Yeah, she's about 35, and I think she's sort of reaching a peak in her skills, but also a point at which it's said that she didn't want to take on leading roles even if she was offered them because she didn't want the responsibility and so on but that might be true to a certain extent but it might also be focus on the fact that she was an alcoholic and actually put herself into rehab in 1949 so at the time maybe she was finding things too stressful you say she's an alcoholic, and but but if you read any of the literature, any of the autobiographies of people at the time, this all of them are drinking so heavily. Surely, uh, yes. I mean, this is it. I think I think things are unfair on the women compared to the men, because clearly now Berg is described as an alcoholic. Sure. Uh, and then until he marries Bacall and she curbs his drinking once his kids come into the frame, he is. You know, as long as they're not drunk when they turn up in the work, they're considered professional. Right. Carrying on. It's, and, I mean, talking of the patriarchy and doing things down, Bogey, who is the same age as Astor at the time? He's about four or five years older. So, But he goes on and takes um, a career of leading roles. Yep. And it breaks out from here. Mary Astor, whose performance is outstanding, 
basically continues being a supporting actress, even wins Best Supporting Actress Oscar two years later, um, but immediately finds herself trapped into mother roles. Because, of course, she's 35, she's ancient, she's got to be a mother. You know, there's sure. no other... Despite having demonstrated such a good grasp of character, equal to her friends Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, she's not given, or perhaps also drawn... Well, she's given a seven-year contract that only gives her these kind of subsidiary roles. And she very quickly becomes disillusioned, like I say, has to check into a rehab clinic, and from that point onwards, she's in her early 40s and things just slowed down for her. Yeah, so it's really sad because I think she's brilliant. Let's talk about John Huston. I mean, he's written and directed High Sierra with Bogart before. What's the process for him getting into this film? So he's the son of Walter Houston, a very famous character actor who even has very tiny cameo in this, which I didn't know until I was watching it recently. No, I didn't know that. Houston is born into Hollywood, basically, because of his father being there. He's a writer, but he's also a bit of an outlier. He likes to gamble. He likes to party. He likes to hunt big game, as he finds out. You know, All of these sort of different things that give him a life beyond just making movies. Obviously, movies are highly well paid and so on and so forth. Sure, sure. And he enjoys constructing stories and telling them and collaborating with people. But he must also enjoy being the man in charge. Right. He's a director after all. But this is his opportunity, basically. He's written some a couple of very successful pictures and had jobs touching up dialogue and things in um, Wuthering Heights, whatever it was. Yeah. And this is his opportunity. Again, not an A picture, but a bit above a B picture. Because High Sierra is just a cowboy film, isn't it? Where it was launched as just a cowboy film, so it's not a big budget, big... Not huge, but this is like... We'll give you some decent actors... Go away, make this picture as quickly as you can. He does. Brings it in under budget, under schedule, I think, by a couple of what days. What was the schedule? Can't remember. 35 days. It's very quick turnaround for Ooh. these sort of films. Yeah. It really is. I mean, this is why Bogart in 39 makes seven pictures that are released that year. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot of work in. But yeah, <clears throat> this is Houston's breakout. As I say, he's successful. So therefore, he's then given more opportunities. But the war comes along and he goes off and joins the film unit in the war. So he has a break in his career by doing that. Bogie, I found out today, actually tried to volunteer and enlist, but was refused because of his age. Yeah. So, because uh, he was just over 40. But he did volunteer for the, uh, you know, go out on his boat and patrol the, <laughs> the Californian <laughs> Sea. Okay, brilliant. So what's, what's left to do? I mean, watch the movie, obviously. We watched the movie, settled down with a cup of tea and a nice biscuit. What's today's biscuit? Choco Leibniz. A classic choice to go with a classic movie. Yeah. But anyway, I understand it's been a while since you watched this film. Could be be 20 years. 20 years at least since I last watched this film. My memories is is one of those ones that I watched on the BBC when they did Sunday afternoon. Rainy Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was really enjoyable. Yeah. Even if it was in black and white and I'd have rather have watched Star Wars, this was one that I remember fondly. How about yourself? We had black and white telly... Until 1983. So everything was black and white, for starters. (laughs) But for me, yeah, I think I have very strong memories of quite a few movies, and this is one of them at the time, because everybody stands out so well. Sure. It grabs your attention, even if you're six. So let's sit back and watch it, and then after the the film, we'll have a little think about whether it still stands up, what we recognise, what we think is good. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's watch the movie. (laughs) 
Okay, it's the end of the film. End of the film. That was the Maltese Falcon. So, Paddy, first time in 20 years. How did you feel? Well, I'd forgotten so much. Um, I genuinely had forgotten most of the plot. <laughs> so, there you go. There was lots of surprises for me. And a lot of plot to follow. There is, isn't there? There's a lot of plot to follow. A lot of dialogue. It's a very talky film. Yeah. Um, it's a very tight film, though. There isn't any scene that is padding or wasted or there's none of that I mean if I just take um, what I think is a modern-ish example Jackie Brown mm-hmm. similar but there's lots of scenes in that which are purely to show off the world rather than to extend the story you don't absolutely need to see Samuel L. Jackson surrounded by beautiful girls firing machine guns into the distance yeah, yeah. oh that's on the video isn't it yeah, yeah. but it that is something that Tarantino made as a style choice, which Houston decided not to. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it kept, it held me still very much. Yes, I I really enjoyed it. I have to admit this is the second time in the week. (laughs) But even then, I I watched it last time in the commentary. And it's a fascinating film. It's pretty faithful to the book. Um, Although it's it's a while since I read the book. It's... Tremendously well acted, although in the style of its time. Very static acting. Yes. And I think that's a lot to do with the camera movements. They have to hit their marks. They have to be lit so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel it's a quite a one-tone yeah. style of acting. Yeah, so everybody's acting in quite the same manner. It's just the pace of their dialogue. is faster when it's bogey, not so fast when it's Peter Laurie. Very fast when it's Mary Astor. Very fast. She's a fast-talking woman. Um, But very clear. Yes. Diction. Diction. If only they had it nowadays. And if only they turned up the dialogue so that you could actually hear it over the sound. Anyway, that's an old man problem. Nobody needs to know about (laughs) Um, my problems. Or our problems. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Taking from me, for me, taking away the things that I loved from the film, I really enjoyed how beautifully constructed every scene was and the consideration of each shot. I'm going to take two examples. There's the the call to Spade when he's told that Arch has been killed, where we just see the still life silhouetted against the window. We've got the bedside table with the objects placed there and just his hand reaches in, picks up the phone. But every, every item on that thing tells you something about Spade. There's the racing paper, there's the... Uh, scotch. There's um, pipe in the, in the yeah, yeah yeah and 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 a, 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 what was the book? Oh, I can't remember what the book was, but there's something to indicate that he's more cerebral than just the racing drinking. Yes. There's also the scene where they frame Sydney Greenstreet as Gutman, and they take that low angle to really emphasise the size of him. It would just fill the entire screen if you're watching it in cinema, wouldn't it? It's God, just yeah. he's huge. It's huge, and it's but it's very subtly done because otherwise he's not actually that much taller than uh, um, Bogart or Laurie. It's just he fills the screen, and it's his introduction, isn't it? It's... Yeah, um, there's not as much use of the film noir tropes as I remember the extreme examples of shadow and chiaroscura, which I've probably never said right once. Um, there's not. The extreme Dutch, the extreme weird angles. Yeah. 
Do you yeah. think that comes later? It's possibly something that's stylistically done, perhaps with films of a lesser nature. Well, I was thinking Third Map more than anything. Well, that's true, and that's that's actually a very much more cinematic film, isn't it? That's opened up. That's on the real streets of Vienna. Yeah. Um, this is what five sets. It's not a lot, is there? I mean, we were we were discussing whether they were doing any shooting exteriors. Yeah, I mean, there's very little, probably on the standard Warner Brothers outside set. No, it's nearly all in. It's nearly yeah. all interiors. There were some very clever setups. The long shot through the window yes. with the curtain going across, so that we could see the boy, where Wilma. Following the them, the boy, the twenty-year-old man the, who's the 30, pushing forty. Yes, exactly. Anyway. I think they just all look older. They do all look older. I mean, you'd be hard-pushed to tell that Bogie's 40, 41. And Mary Astor does not look 35. She looks older than that. Yeah. But that's by modern standards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody drank a bit more, smoked a bit considerably more. And they just looked older. The way they dress, everything is. Yes. Um, So... What about you? What did you take? Uh, did you? You were talking about remakes at some point. Yeah, I was thinking that for such a classic film, there's no attempt to remake this. There's, I think we've identified one film, uh, a comedy made in 1975. Stand for the Devil? Stand by the Devil. Up for the Devil. I can't remember what it was called. Something with George Segal. It's got to not, be good. Not very well remembered anyway. But nevertheless, I mean, they've, they've had radio adaptations, talkie film. Probably makes a good adaptation. Uh, in the nineteen forties, obviously, there was a big thing that most of the original cast of movies would remake the um, the story for radio. So you'd often find Bogart doing this again, Key Largo. I think there's a mm. number of ones they they redid on the radio, but there's no actual cinematic remake, and yet it'd been made twice, three times previously. Yeah, um, and why never since? Is it because it's such a classic picture and no one can? I mean, obviously, for the first 10, 15 years, it's Bogie's film. We're not going to touch it. But is it because there's not sufficient action for today's standards? Well, there is no action. I mean, it's, the, 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 it's a very male-oriented, well, it's a male-dominated film. The female characters are subsidiary, subservient. I'm not quite sure what the word is, but they at no stage appear to have any lives or purpose of their own, except... For Mary Astor's Except for Mary extreme Astor's. greed to have yeah. the Falcon. Yes. There is no action. It's just talky. It's very dense, very densely potted. That last scene. 20 minutes of just them all talking together in the one room, deciding who's going to take the fall. That's It's pretty hard to imagine in, with Tom Cruise in the lead, isn't it? <laughs> it is, really. Um, Although he'd probably do it very well. He'd probably do it very well, but it just seems surprising there was no sort of 60s remake. I suppose it's a product of its time, thinking about it, would you want to make it into a period piece and therefore it would be very expensive to recreate the period? I think all of that's true. Um, And there's something about the difference in acting. Could people really pull off that style, get across the same dynamism? As you say, it's static, but it's quite propulsive. There's no fat to the storytelling. There's no wasted shots. Bang, bang, bang. An hour 40 minutes just rattled by. But equally, there's a there's very few classic noirs that have been remade. Perhaps it just doesn't interest that many people. True. I can only think off the top of my head DOA with Dennis Quaid. I love the, I love the Dennis Quaid one. And that's, thir- and that's 30 plus years ago. Now. And that made no money. Yeah. So I think we know why. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that 
that was a fantastic evening. That was a great introduction to our uh, Sunday Night Movie Club. Let's make another one sometime soon. Yes, till the next time. Okay, great. See you next time on Sunday Night Movie Club. Movie Club. <laughs> movie <Okay>. Night Sunday. <laughs> movie Sunday Night... No! Okay. Splitter. <laughs> Sunday Movie Night Club. <laughs> what is the name of the damn podcast? Sunday Night Movie Club? No. <laughs> Sunday Movie Club. Sunday Movie Club. Bye. Right. <laughs> See you next time on Sunday, Sunday Movie, Movie Club. Club.